Hello, welcome to the Creative Writing Life podcast. I'm Justin Sloan. And I'm Paul Zeidman. Very happy to introduce our very special guest. Boy, he is a writer in so many fields. Uh, this is going to be a fascinating discussion. Uh, welcome to the Creative Writing Life podcast, Neil Apadier. Hi, nice to have, uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Don't nice be nervous. Be Don't be nervous. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> sorry, can we take that again? No, nope, nope. This, this is this is all this is all live. Well, it's not live, yeah. but you know what I mean. <laughs> uh, so yeah. So okay. So Neil, I just I'm just going to go over some of your bio real quick. So uh, you are with Azra Games, which I believe is in the uh, Sacramento area. Uh, and you know, before that, you worked at Electronic Arts, and you also worked for uh, is it it wasn't Lucasfilm, was it Lucas Arts? I actually worked with Lucasfilm while I was at EA. Um, EA okay. had the exclusive license to make Star Wars games for about 10 years. And uh, during my time at EA, I was the creative director for marketing for all the games that EA released. And so uh, over time, I got to do a lot of interesting work with them, which has been a pleasure. All right. That uh, is great stuff. Uh, so we'll get to that in a minute. But first, Justin. Oh, yeah. So we always do like, what are we listening to, <laughs> reading, playing, watching, any of that kind of stuff? Uh, so just randomly, cause I've been going through old sci-fi books for the fun of it. And, uh, I had read Dune back in probably 2000, 99, somewhere in that range. And so I popped up in the audiobook for Dune, which I'd never listened to. And that has been a treat. It's a, uh, you know, multi-voice cast and all that and sound effects here and there. And so, uh, great stuff. It's bringing me back to the old days and I'm loving it. It's a weird one because, you know, Modern writers tend to write without using omniscient view, and this one very much hops around in heads all over the place. Uh, so it's, especially when you're listening to audio, sometimes that's annoying or confusing, but because it is the multi-voice cast, less so. So I'm enjoying the hell out of it. How about you, Paul? Uh, very cool. I've uh, been watching a couple of things. Well, and last week uh, was the last week of September. So Netflix sent out their very last red envelopes, and I'm going to miss <laughs> that so much. And they also said that I guess whatever they sent out, you pretty much you can keep. So I decided, oh. well, you know what? What's what's one that I'm I want to keep? And so it holds a special place in my heart. So I got the uh, 1994 flick Alec Baldwin's The Shadow, just because I'm a huge fan of the character. And the movie kind of still holds up. Uh, you know, it's to a certain extent. Uh, I enjoyed it, and but also uh, I think I've discussed this before. Justin knows this that I'm I'm slowly working my way through Adventure Time on Max, and I just finished season two. And this the show is developing, and they're fleshing out the characters. And I got to say, the, the episode I enjoyed the absolute most recently was one where they make a movie, and it's just it just plays on so many tropes and cliches about movie making, and it was hilarious, and I enjoyed it, and I'm looking forward to seeing how what they are doing. Uh, yeah, I just started season three, so I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with that one. Neil, what about you? What's what's in the what's in the reading or viewing queue? Uh, well, I think the last two shows that I just completed watching are uh, Foundation season two, and I had read the Isaac Asimov books uh, decades ago at this point, and uh, it's been fascinating to see how they adapted it because it's such a challenge to bring a story like that to the screen because you know every few chapters, the story jumps forward, sometimes 100, sometimes 400 years. And so everyone you really love or care about is gone. And, and to do that and not do it as a pure anthology show, I think is a real challenge. And it's very interesting to see um, how the filmmakers tackled that one and what they added to it. Uh, I think you know, adaptation is a, an art in and of itself. And, and it's, it's really fun to dissect that one. I'm enjoying it. And I also just caught up on Andor. And oh. I have to say, I think it's probably 
my favorite Star Wars anything. It's um, it's so tonally consistent. It's uh, character first. I never realized I needed more Mon Mothma in my life. Uh, <laughs> and and I, I think it's just head and shoulders above uh, anything else in the franchise that we've seen in a long time. And so that was just a delight. Yeah, I, I enjoyed that a lot as well. It very, it's it's so weird to watch a Star Wars uh, program and not have to worry about too many Jedis or lightsabers because mm-hmm. they're pretty much non-existent in that one. And I think that's part of that was honestly part of the appeal because it was it was much more about the characters rather than uh, you know lasers and spaceships. Yeah, I mean they took the second lead from a spin-off movie and made it an entire show and didn't include the slapstick sidekick robot. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the executional risk, I'm sure, um, felt pretty high going into it. And I think uh, the Tony Gilroy and everyone just knocked it out of the park. So I agree totally. Okay, so Neil, tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, uh, we've talked to so many writers on the show before. So were you the kind of kid who like you know you've been a writer ever since you can remember or is it kind of like you you know you were never really keen on writing but then you decided hey i'm going to try this hey i'm actually pretty good at it i think i can make a living at this what 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 was what is your story uh that's a great question i've always been a storyteller and i don't think i ever really considered writing as a profession and uh and as i was going through you know grade school and um, and getting into high school. I was that theater kid. Um, I was always a performer. I was in all the musicals and I was, I would create board games for school projects, anything that, you know, was a way of telling a story. And it was really in, um, in high school after several years of thinking I wanted to be a game designer primarily that, um, I watched the Lord of the Rings, the Peter Jackson trilogy. And, those extended editions, you know, came with nine hours of making of each. And those really became my first film school. And I delved into those and realized like, wow, the lives of the people making these movies is even more fantastic than this fantasy world they're portraying. I, I want, I want to do this. And that's where my heart really got set on uh, being a director. And of course, if you want to direct you have to create your own opportunities. And so writing was just a natural byproduct of that as was producing and a whole other host of things. And so I've been on that train ever since. So, okay. So were you the, uh, when you decided like, you know, I want to be a director, I want to make stuff. Did you start making just, you know, short films uh, with your friends or just kind of like, Hey, I'm going to make a five minute short and that kind of expanded and expanded. And then, you know, you just kept making longer and longer projects. Yep, exactly. Um, I just grabbed, you know, um, uh, camcorders at the time and started making movies with my friends in high school and got together enough of a portfolio that it was able to get into USC and uh, USC at the time uh, had an interesting uh, policy. They would not accept any films you've made as a part of your submission. And they wanted to even the playing field because access to equipment of any kind was not that readily available, right? Um, now we can shoot everything on our phones, but at the time there could be quite a disparity between people who had access to the equipment to shoot and edit versus didn't. And so they were really just looking for uh, for passion and storytelling um, uh, prowess and uh, and you know and just some grit to do it. And so they only accepted 
writing submissions. And so I wrote, uh, I wrote basically prose um, as like a, a small short story. Um, it wasn't formatted as a screenplay or anything. And that along with everything else they require got me into film school. And so I went down into uh, USC and the production major there and ended up staying in the LA area for uh, about 18 years. Wow. Okay. So, okay. So you went to school for production, but how did that um, relate to, I guess, doing more writing and more, I guess, directing and filmmaking for you? Did, was that part of your curriculum, but did you also start doing stuff like on your own outside of uh, school? That's right. Uh, production at USC is just simply to say the making of films versus critical studies, which is the study of film. So as a production major, you're not studying to be a producer, you're learning all of the arts and then eventually you might specialize. And so, yes, we did all those things. I was in a very, very lucky cohort at USC. I graduated in 2008 and I was among the last people that shot on film. Hmm. And so I had my junior thesis project, if you will, uh, that they call 310, that we shot on 16 millimeter and then we shot our 480 which is our senior thesis film on digital on the very first digital cameras that were the you know precursors to the red when that took off and so it was an amazing time to be able to touch the roots of this medium and really understand um the the basic premises of of putting a story on screen um, in that very tactile medium where there is no undo button, you know, right. and you need the patience to develop the develop the image. And that, that creates real discipline. And I'm so glad I got to have that experience. And uh, because when you're in a class format, there's all these restrictions around what you can and cannot do. I always had a love-hate relationship with USC as a result. Um, I was always producing content on the side and always had stories to tell. And that carried forward into my career past SC. Okay, so this is this is where it gets really interesting for me. Is okay, so you went to school for production in film. Now, how did you make that transition from working in film production to writing and developing for games? And I'm going to let Justin take over after this because games are really his his forte. Awesome. Well, uh, as I was leaving USC in 2008, I had two job offers in front of me. One was in a post-production facility. It was a union job. I would have been dubbing tapes in the back for years until you know I got enough hours to put my hands on an Avid. And the other job offer I had was in the video game industry. It was to uh, be it was to be an assistant editor cutting marketing podcasts for Electronic Arts on the Command and Conquer franchise. And so I decided to go that route because I felt like this job is going to let me start cutting right away. And I'm going to get better at my craft every single day. And a few years in, I thought I'd made a huge mistake because all my friends who went for that assistant, assistant, assistant union job, or were getting coffee for, you know, Seth MacFarlane were now assistant writers in the writer's room on Family Guy. And I was like, oh, what have I done? I went into this other <laughs> weird medium. I should have just dubbed tapes and gotten coffee. But of course, um, over the next decade, video games just became increasingly an immersive um, medium merged with film, all started to compete for the same um, entertainment dollar and the same 
you know, attention and eyeballs. And, and so just doubling down in this other medium that I've really come to love um, with interactive storytelling just kind of ended up being my path. Now, I never stopped making movies uh, and I was lucky to have, uh, have folks even within just like EA corporate that were very supportive of that. And so along the way, I was able to um, uh, sell a podcast that became an animated pilot at Disney. I, uh, I bootstrapped and kickstarted um, um, a feature film that uh, I directed that's on Amazon Prime called Dating Daisy. And along the way, just continued to move my video game career forward, eventually becoming a creative director on the marketing side for Star Wars. And then in my last three years uh, that I was at EA, I spent 14 years there. Uh, there was a moment where the head of content um, sat me down. He could tell I was ready for something new. And he asked me, like, what would you be excited to take on? What do you think we should be doing as a company that we're not doing? And I said to him, I don't think we're doing enough storytelling in our marketing. You know, trailers are great for informing. Trailers are great for creating hype. But they're not great for creating connection because you fall in love with what you spend time with and runtime matters. And as game developers, we're obsessed with, you know, metrics like DAU, daily average users. Um, and, and, and we care about um, how much time somebody send, spends over, you know, a life cycle of a game. How many days in a row do they log in? Because we know that if we can increase that number, they're more likely to have an investment uh, in the in the story, in the game, and are more likely to come back or buy the sequel, et cetera. And so what if we could do that? What if we could increase people's time that they spend with our brand, even when they don't have a controller in their hand? And so uh, that's what I wanted to go and solve. And they said, that sounds great. There's no budget. Go figure it out. And so... That started a year of me flying around various EA studios and making a pitch for doing short form, long form storytelling, uh, essentially doing you know shorts instead of trailers and making marketing an extension of the storytelling that happens in the games themselves. This led to a lot of opportunities that we can talk about and uh, eventually also um, got me into just writing content for the games themselves. And that was an amazing education. I had some really amazing partners who let me play with their toys and get messy and make mistakes and learn. And, and then all of that eventually uh, led me to deciding to be a developer full-time and, uh, and get out of uh, the marketing side of things and take all those learnings with me. And I went and joined Azure Games when it was a startup as employee number 16 last year. Awesome. Uh, so what would you describe as your actual like day-to-day -day there now? Like, is it, is it in any way resembling what you thought you might do when you went to film school <laughs> or what has it become in this like kind of mutated version of everything led to this moment? It, it very much is still relevant to the things that I picked up in film school. So one of the things that's great about a startup is that you can wear a lot of hats and even within my time at EA, I think most of the jobs I had there, I made up. I just saw an opportunity, I'd make a pitch and then put some kind of title and responsibilities together. And I just had, you know, advocates, different advocates over time that let that happen. And so I was always kind of an intrapreneur, if you will, 
you know, leading little experimental bizarre things within an existing company. And so then to bring that here, it's the same thing. I'm trying to carve out um, a set of responsibilities that align with my particular skills so that we as a team can drive forward the results we want. And we do that with everyone here. And so my responsibilities right now on the team are um, to be that front-facing producer that can align the team around you know, the common goal and, and, and help us drive those outcomes. But I'm also a defective narrative director here as well, uh, working with the creative director, the head of design, uh, to make sure that we are able to tell a cohesive and immersive story stringing through all of the features in the game um, in a way that aligns with the, the goal of our design patterns and the experience that we want the players to have. I'm doing a lot of writing as well at the moment. And, you know, we're a small team. And so everyone's wearing a lot of hats. And these are just some of the hats that I've picked up here. And they continue to change, you know. Uh, it, and that's just one of the fun things about being at a startup. And has that game, has a Project Legends, has that released yet? No, Project Legends okay. is the code name for our first game, okay. uh, which is a dark fantasy action RPG that we're developing Sweet. for mobile and PC. And it's uh, it's still a little ways off. We're in pre-production right now, but it's incredibly exciting times. Um, uh, I have okay. to say, you know, RPGs is my jam. That's what I play, single-player story-driven games. And, and to do that and build our own dark fantasy world is... Uh, Man, I can't think of anything better than that. Yeah, it looks amazing. All the concept art and whatnot uh, on there look great. So hopefully the final product will too, I'm sure. Uh, is it still blockchain web three or have you moved away from that? Yeah. Uh, do. <laughs> yeah, we're we consider ourselves to be um well, we from the beginning, we always knew that the game had to be fun and the gameplay had to be first. And so um, we considered ourselves to be kind of like web three sensitive to see if the opportunities are there, but okay. never in a way that that was going to take uh, the forefront of our planning. And so we'll see what, what happens with it. But at the current time, there's nothing in the game that is on the blockchain um, and there's no part of the, um, the core loop of okay. the game that engages with um, with crypto or tokens in that way. Okay, there will will there be and maybe this is too much that you can't say. And if so, just you know, hold up a hand. <laughs> Are there tokens at all in the game, even if they're not core to the actual gameplay? Is there some kind of token aspect or anything? Like no, that? we haven't we haven't done any okay. type of token drop or anything um, of the kind. Uh, no plans in the immediate future to do that. Uh, we yeah. last year we basically released uh, one. Um, mint of NFTs that was just a free gift to the community, almost like just an early founders pass um, okay, as, cool. a, as a club to bring, you know, early adopters in that mm -hmm. um, is, is, you know, it's got its loyalty perks, um, but those are not characters that are in the game or assets that are in the game um, or anything of that nature. And so uh, truly our team has always been focused on gameplay first, fun first. And so um, if you, if you look at what you what would you expect from a triple A game that is a hero collector, single player, dark fantasy action RPG from the same team, you know, of over 40% of this team is the team 
that uh, created Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes. You know, that's the type of experience that we're creating, but it goes so well beyond the ambitions of that game. It's pretty phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. So I come at this from, I went to Games Beat in LA last year and it was all about like, how are game companies that have started at some point being Web3, how are they, are they sticking to it or not? So I'm curious. Mm -hmm. And then, so I'm a narrative lead right now at Planet Quest, uh, Galactic mm -hmm. Entertainment. And that's one of these kind of Web3 things that's like game yeah. first and, you know, a lot of the same things that you're saying. So <laughs> it's interesting to yeah. see how like the language might've been totally different a year and a half ago, uh, but not anymore. So yeah. Uh, yeah, cool. So, so into, yeah, oh, I'm I'm glad that we kind of always had that uh, consistent yeah. messaging. You know, we we saw an opportunity there, but we we treaded cautiously because we recognized that um, there is there's a difference between intrinsic motivations and extrinsic motivations, and you have to know your audience. Mm -hmm. And and we wanted to make sure that extrinsic motivations around what's happening in some kind of uh, Web three ecosystem doesn't jack up the motivations um, that are fundamental to why do you show up in a game and show yeah. up every day, and so that's always been our focus, and that hasn't changed. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so you've worked on a lot of cool titles when you were with EA. I'm just wondering, does uh, what two parts? So let's start with what was the most exciting for you? Was there like one of these projects that you're like, oh man, this made my day. This determined who I am now. Like when I die, I'm gonna put that on my tombstone. Uh, <laughs> wow. Uh, I would, that level. <laughs> well, the thing is I did a lot of different things in a lot of different functions, right? And so uh -huh. I've done a lot of cool TV spots. I've done a lot of cool trailers, but I think that the work that I'm the most proud of is, is what I did as a creative director on narrative in those last few years at EA. The highlight for me is definitely uh, the short film Hunted uh, that um, me and my team created for the video game Star Wars Squadrons. It was made by uh, EA Motive in Montreal. And uh, quite quite a story on, on how that one uh, came together, if you'd like to hear it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think this is what we're here for. Most of our listeners are like, what does it actually mean to do this and that? And what goes into the yeah. day to day? And so, yeah, any kind of stories, please. Cool. So when the team sat down to make Star Wars Squadrons, we knew immediately that there was... Um, a challenge we're going to face because Star Wars Squadrons is a flight simulator. That's already a niche genre. It's not exactly as simple and accessible as become a Jedi and, you know, put a lightsaber in your hands. Right. And so as we were brainstorming um, as a team on, you know, a smaller budget niche genre, how are we going to get people excited about this? You know, I made the pitch that we should do something that teases people and reignites their memories of geeking out over X-Wings versus TIE Fighters and make that fantasy real and just entertain them. And so I flew out to Montreal and I met with the team there and the writers uh, specifically on the game and uh, learned about their characters, learned about the storyline of the game. And there were a couple things that really stood out to me. Uh, one was that the game takes place after the events of Return of the Jedi. So Death Star 2 is exploded. Emperor is dead. Vader's dead. Empire is basically now the underdog in the timeline after that event. And so it started to make me think that there might be an interesting perspective shift that we could do here. You know, we're always seeing Luke Skywalker or Poe Dameron just blow TIE fighters out of the sky. But what does it feel like for that guy to have a rebel ace on your back? And so that's where the kernel of this idea really started. And I started to flesh it out in collaboration with the writers at Motive. 
until we had a pitch that we were ready to take to Lucasfilm. And at this point, I'd been working with Lucasfilm for seven years across various different um, Star EA Star Wars properties. And so it was a real pleasure this time around uh, to not be able just to talk to the, the video game team over there, but also to talk to Story Group, the same group that makes sure that everything that Star Wars does across comics, novels, video games, uh, all tie into uh, the franchise's overall direction. And so we showed up and I think the power of the pitch really was that inverted underdog story. And I wanted to take that idea and apply it to every aspect. So a TIE pilot is the hero. And the way that we even just frame and shoot the X-Wing is the way that you're used to seeing a TIE fighter. Close-up shots, anonymous visor, never says a word, cold and calculating, almost taking a page from uh, Steven Spielberg's duel where that semi-truck that's trying to kill the protagonist, you know, the engine roar, uh, the headlamps, you know, the truck is really almost this um, monster in this movie, right? And so I wanted to do that same thing with the X-Wing. And, and they, they love the pitch. And so after that, um, I, you know, flew out to, uh, to Lucasfilm, met with Story Group, and I was uh, also really, really uh, incredibly blessed to meet John Knoll at that meeting. And John Knoll is one of the original Lucasfilm guys, inventor of Photoshop, the guy who did a lot of the visual effects in the original Star Wars, came up with the idea of Rogue One, you know, 30 years ago. And, and this film had a lot in common with that tone of Rogue One. And, and so that, I think that kind of tickled him. And so I met with him and I thought, Hey, he's just shaking hands because, you know, we're going to do this, you know, project with, with, with ILM. But um, he eventually actually went on to be our visual effects soup. And I got to learn from somebody who helped invent Star Wars. And, and that was just an absolute treat. There was one scary moment though, where the script goes to, you know, president of ILM. She looks at my name on the front page and goes, who is this yokel? This guy's not doing this. And it was just one of those things where um, it's so gratifying to know that if you just are committed to doing the work and not being a jerk and making good relationships and you're prepared for those moments, then things work themselves out. Um, without me ever knowing about it, the folks on the video game side of Lucasfilm went to bat for me. And they said, no, actually, like, look at all the stuff this, you know, guy's done. He understands the brand. He's a good steward of the brand. And, you know, he wrote it and he should do it. And so I didn't even hear about it until it was all over. I got a call and it was like, so this happened and it's all fine. You're in, you're directing. Nice. And, and then COVID hit. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden I was directing this entire project from home. So from my computer mocap stage me on a camera only one actor on the stage at a time people on the other side of the glass hitting record on all of the volume cameras and doing dailies with ilm every day reviewing shots and it was a very fast production i i think i pitched the idea to ea in january we got it through story group at lucasfilm in march and the piece came out in august or september of that year so it was it was absolute blitz and and lucas was kind enough to uh put out this piece it was a on the day it launched it was on starwars.com it was a blog with me and john noel talking about this piece and it just 
happened to be that somebody at WME was just scraping the internet and saw that contacted me. And so then, you know, after who knows how many years thinking, Oh, I got to get an agent, you know, I'm never going to get an agent to work in the video game industry. Ah, all of a sudden working on video game stuff, you know, got me represented and opened up some new opportunities that have been exciting. Yeah, that's really cool. Would you say that that moment of going into uh, over to Lucasfilm or has there been any other moment in your life where you're kind of like awestruck? Uh, any key moments throughout this whole career where you've been like, whoa? Uh, I met Peter Jackson. <laughs> nice. That was pretty cool. Yeah. Is uh, that related to job stuff or just random? So Star Wars Battlefront was one of the first games to support Dolby Atmos. And at the time, if you remember, uh, the the theater in LA, formerly known as a Kodak theater where the Oscars happened, had been bought by Dolby and it was a Dolby theater. And so because we were close partners with them and showing off their technology, um, every so often they would give us some spare tickets to cool stuff that was happening down at their theater. And so I got to go to the premiere of uh, Age of Ultron, and uh, and then they were having the LA premiere of the third Hobbit film oh, as nice. well. And so I went, and I was at the party, and there's Peter Jackson, and I don't want to be weird or anything, and uh, <laughs> but I just I had to tell him that you know, you know his his transparency and how he made that trilogy and the impact. Uh, that that trilogy and its execution had had on my life. And so got to go up, talk to him, tell him, hey, you're the reason I'm a filmmaker today. Have a fantastic evening. And he just thought yeah. that was cool. And uh, <laughs> I thought that was cool. And I was like, job done. <laughs> Super cool. Yeah. I'll ask one more and see if Paul has more so I don't occupy it all, but I can hop back in, of course. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, you, you mentioned the the agent thing. And so this is something that I think a lot of, especially people going into games are curious about is like, do they need managers, agents uh, to to weigh in on it? I have managers on the screenplay side mm-hmm. who could, in theory, do game stuff too, but they've they've said they would only take a percentage if they helped me get a game job, uh, but otherwise not in that regard, which is interesting because uh, mm-hmm. you hear stories all over the place. So I'm curious about your thoughts on this, like when you should expect, uh, when, uh, if they're specific to games, then pretty much would you always give them a percentage of any game game, game job you got, like forever? Uh, how does this work? Uh, my agents have nothing to do with my video game career. Oh, okay. So we, so this is on the film side. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So even if they found, well, what about if they found a game thing and they're like, oh, this is awesome. We're not game people, but look, look at this. Would that be something that then you would consider and then probably give them a percentage of, do you think? I suppose, but that, that is um, more of like the transactional gig economy mm-hmm. in video game writing, which I've never been a part of. So there are certainly there are certainly writers uh, with prestige, usually because of successes in other mediums like film or television, that will get hired as contractors for a certain period of time during production. And so this is very common with big developers. Um, you know, Call of Duty will hire quote unquote Hollywood writers to help break the story or execute on the story during that slice of production. And then, you know, they're on to the next thing. And so if you're a writer like that, then yeah, sure. You know, your agent might be able to get you work writing in any medium 
but video game companies are probably going to hire you like that because you've already had some success elsewhere. Yeah. The other way is just to get hired full time as a job at a studio. And um, you may be a part of an internal writer's room that's doing that. You may, um, you may be a part of a narrative design team that just happens to also do writing, but almost invariably that's just going to be a more technical job. So, mm-hmm. you know, to get into it a little bit, you know, writing in video games and writing in, in linear mediums is quite different. And the biggest difference being that ultimately the character on screen is just an avatar and they're powerless. They don't make any decisions. The player makes decisions. And so when you're thinking about like, who's the star, it's really the player, not the character. And what you're trying to do, and of course this varies genre to genre, is try to create as much parity as you can between the emotional state of the player and the emotional state of the character. And so if you want the character to feel sad or scared, then you should do your utmost to make sure that the conditions of the gameplay and the context that the player is in is going to elicit those same types of feelings from the player. And so uh, this was always like a really tricky thing. Um, it's a tricky thing to do. Uh, I can't say I'm necessarily even an expert at it in any, in any sense, but when I was working on Need for Speed Unbound, um, this was something that the creative director of the game would always kind of hammer into me. He's like, hey, you've got this beat. It makes perfect dramatic sense. I get it. It's that, you know, bottom of the second act moment or whatever it might be, right? But is the player this fired up and angry at this other character? Because if the protagonist is like, you ruined my life and screaming at this other person and the player is yeah. like, I don't even remember that character from the previous cutscene because yeah. I've been doing right. three hours of racing, you know, outside of the narrative, then all you're doing is highlighting and drawing a giant circle around the distance between where you are and where the player is. And it's actually going to kick you out of the immersion. And so it's a very different field. um, And it's also just much more technical. So when I'm writing here at Azra, uh, I'm not just writing. I'm also hooking up my own dialogue logic. I'm wiring it up to NPCs and quests in the engine. And, uh, and some of that, it's, it's totally doable. It's, it's, no one should not pursue this if they're passionate about it, um, even if you don't think you're a quote-unquote technical person. But uh, it's certainly not open up final draft, write, <laughs> and it to somebody else. Yeah, it depends on the company, of course. Um, yep. Well, while we're on that topic, actually, one more follow-up. One more, because we're on the topic. Sure. Uh, I did want to ask, I had written down here, you know, with your experience at these different companies, you've been some, you've done some big stuff at EA and whatnot, and uh, I'd, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on where's the line between, you know, you have your narrative team, and you have cinematics, and you have what you were doing, uh, and then that's all related, obviously. Do you feel like there's usually one big person who's, like, looking over all the narrative still, or does the narrative team kind of have their hands in everything, or is it really siloed? Mm. That depends on the studio culture and the team, and so... Uh, I'll I'll use um, Respawn Entertainment as a studio at EA as an example, and then I'll talk about Azure as well. So when I was there at Respawn, you had two very different cultures on the Apex Legends team versus the Jedi Fallen Order team. So the 
Apex Legends team was democratic almost to a fault. So you had a lead designer whose auspices was really design, and you had a narrative director who was in charge of that, and a producer who, you know, made sure that things shipped on time at quality, but was not certainly like the person that owned it all. And for a long time, there wasn't really, I think, really one singular makes all the shots type of person on that team. And that has its downsides, um, you know, and its advantages. Like the advantage is great ideas can come from anywhere. You know, the downside is you've got to get a bunch of people to agree. And sometimes if, you know, you work for one of those people, you're getting feedback from every which way in the company. And, and that's just the way that they chose to work for a long time. Completely different on the Jedi team. It was a single player game. It was a striven game. And Stig Asmussen as the game director, like the buck really stopped with him. And it was his job to make sure that there was one cohesive vision of the game across design and narrative and, you know, um, all the other aspects of level design, et cetera. So it, it kind of depends team to team. Here, we've been in a prototype phase and, and we've had a little bit more of that split between the disciplines. Um, but, you know, we have a creative director whose job it is to make sure that there's one cohesive experience at the end of the day with those things coming together. And in every game company I've worked at, you know, the most successful have been when design leads. It's got to be fun. Words are cheap. Words can change. Lore is not sacrosanct. You morph it and you change it, you know, 30 times to make sure that, um, the best ideas and the and the most compelling and effective gameplay is is what goes out. Awesome, cool, Paul. You got some more stuff to wrap us up? Uh, just a couple of uh, I guess you almost call them generic questions because as, as I mentioned, I really don't know much about you know, games or how they all operate. So, what would you, how would you describe a story driven game? Like, what what is how does that compare? Like, and what would that be, I guess, in contrast to? Is that like a, just a like a one-person shooter game? I mean, just mm-hmm. where this, I mean, how does the story drive the game? I guess is the big question. Well, a story-driven game is an experience that the, the player, well, okay, I'll put it this way. What is a genre in any medium? It's basically a promise to the viewer or player uh, that the experience that they're going to have is going to fall within a certain set of expectations. And so a story-driven game is a promise with the player that they are going to be pulled through an immersive narrator. narrator. Um, through, through, they're going to be pulled through an immersive narrative. And the reason that they're showing up is to escape into a world, to escape into the POV um, of a particular character and uh, that they're essentially going to be um, the driving protagonist in something that feels like an interactive movie or TV show. So that's the promise of the genre. And that can take all sorts of forms. You can have a shooter that's a story-driven game. You could have mm. an action RPG that's a story-driven game. You could have a completely narrative experience that has no combat whatsoever. You could have dialogue choices where, you know, the, the player is role-playing. Um, or you could have completely scripted cutscenes where the player has no choice in how the character responds. 
could have a game where you are stepping into a fixed persona, like I am Spider-Man, or I am Nathan Drake, or a game like Mass Effect where you're creating the character. And so there's tons of different ways that just this one idea can present itself. And so I would really say that, you know, saying something's a story-driven game, it's not even, you know, if you really think about it, it's not even necessarily a genre, but it is um, like a paradigm uh, within which, you know, the gameplay is going to resolve itself uh, based on a certain implicit promise to the player. So that would be in contrast to games where the primary promise is something else like, I'm going to be freaking awesome and dominate, you know, 16 year olds on the internet. Um, <laughs> or every time I show up, it's something different and it's easy for me to hop in and hop out with my friends mm-hmm. or, you know, I just want to step in and I want to build my perfect city or my perfect town. Um, or I just want to let my brain kind of nerd out on a puzzle. These are all different expectations and, and, you know, story has much less weight on it but there's some really cool podcasts out there i've heard talking about how as human beings everything becomes a story everything has a dramatic arc tetris has a dramatic arc mm-hmm. you know all this you know you're you're trying to make order out of chaos that's what tetris is and then all of a sudden when you get that bizarre piece that's not a block or a straight line tension the clock is running down tension and so, you know, we, we as humans just imp- apply a storytelling lens onto everything, even games that have no characters whatsoever. And so I think having a grasp on the tenets of storytelling is useful, no matter what type of game you're making, whether it's story-driven or not. Okay, that, that, does, that does help clarify it. Okay, so it also uh, earlier you talked about uh, you were working with, you said you mentioned short form and long form. Now, can you kind of go into a little more detail about, especially short form, because you said you worked on short form, uh, I forget what the word was, but it was as opposed to like a trailer. So mm-hmm. no, what what was the difference between the two and what was the, the goal of uh, putting the short form together? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, short form generally refers to linear medium entertainment that is not a feature film. And so it can be sometimes anything that's under 45 minutes or sometimes under 22 minutes. And, and what I was doing at EA specifically was creating eight to 10 minute short films. And so that's short form. And the way that differs to a trailer is that, you know, a trailer is generally something that is um, it's an advertising piece. And so it is hyping, teasing, informing, explaining and trying to get you to take the next action to get the full taste, right? To get the full bite. It's just the amuse-bouche, no matter how long it is. You know, it's just a means to an end versus I would say something that is like a short form piece of entertainment. It is the entertainment. The short film feels like a complete thing in and of itself. I sat down with the promise that I'll be entertained. I was entertained and that's what it was there to do. Now, of course, strategically, we're doing a whole lot of other things with it because it's something that fits into the thread of um, of one particular story in a transmedia canvas. But that's ultimately, you know, the difference between a trailer and a piece of short form content. So to put some 
meat on that bone, right? Like transmedia, the idea of transmedia is telling one story through multiple different mediums and channels. And so that was really the power, I think, of what we were able to eventually get to on Apex Legends. And so we would create single narratives that wove through both marketing and the game. And so you'd be in the game, all of a sudden you'd see this hatch added to the level that was never there before. That's going to some weird underground facility. What the heck is that? And then all of a sudden the short film comes out and it takes place in that facility. And when at the end of the film, when you pop up, you realize where you're at. And there's these characters, this alternate version of this character that you play um, that you've never seen before. And then the game is has a skin for your main character that looks like that character. So now you can kind of imagine that you're role playing and you're owning the narrative and you're you're stepping into something that's canon. You know, it's not just I played another match of Apex Legends. Like, no, I'm I'm actually reliving that fantasy, right? And then that is actually setting up the story for whatever the next character that's going to come out is, or it that short film was full of teasers for what the next map is going to be in live service. And so where, what's the product? What's the entertainment? Is it stuff that we did on Twitter and YouTube or is it the game or is it all of it? Right. And so that's the type of transmedia storytelling that uh, my department was trying to um, kind of ingrain in the way that we talked about that particular game. And it led to some really amazing successes. Okay. Fantastic. Uh, that is all of my questions. Justin, do you have anything else? Oh, I'm sure we could go for another hour or two, right? But uh, <laughs> we'll have to get Neil over some beers sometime and pick his brain more in secret and then uh, invite him back on. So, uh, Neil, anything that you wanted to share? Any more like shout outs, upcoming, anything? Uh, just so you know, proud of the team here and and uh, building a new world, you know, after almost seven, eight years uh, working on Star Wars to be able to start creating kind of our own, our own, uh, you know, galaxy far, far away, if you will, has just been an absolute pleasure um, with, you know, Mark Otero, our, our CEO that's on his ninth game, you know, has successfully sold a video game studio before and they decided for kicks to just do it again. And so we've got just such strong leadership at the helm and uh, a team that's just so driven uh, to create a new experience. So it's a pleasure to serve with them every day and tell some awesome stories. Yeah, and the project looks great. I look forward to hearing more about it. And uh, the uh, the invitation is always open, like we said. So when you have something big, when it releases, when you're ready to talk about some more, if you just want to hop on and chat through one big storyline and focus purely on the game or something, we're, we're open to it. So uh, how cool. can people find you, social media or whatever? Do you have any ways that you want people to look you up? Uh, LinkedIn is probably the place I'm most active right now. And so you can absolutely find me there. And uh, go to azuregames.com if you want to work in the industry. We got job openings. Go hit it. Awesome. Cool. Awesome. Well, great. Thank you again for coming on the show. It's been wonderful. Thanks for having me. Cheers. And uh, yeah, listeners, go check it out. It's going to be fun. We'll have updates when everything releases, I'm sure. And uh, if you can leave reviews for the show, that's always welcome. Once again, I'm Justin Sloan. This is the Creative Writing Life Podcast. And I'm Paul Zeidman. You can check out my screenwriting blog, Maximum Z at MaximumZ.blog. I'm also on Twitter at Maximum underscore Z. And you'll also check out my books on Amazon as well. Like you said, he's Justin, he's Neil, and I'm Paul. This has been the Creative Writing Life Podcast. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy. Most importantly, go write something.